Hello and welcome to Almost 30 Podcast. What's up, guys? How are we feeling? So glad you're here. It's Lindsay and Krista. Your guides and friends. Your guides and friends. We're, we're here to do this. We're excited to have you here. We are like moving on into 2021. It is just, I can't, can't get a grip. What do you mean? I don't want to, I don't know. I don't want to do the, <laughs> this year's going by fast conversation. So just ignore what I said. I'm kind of shocked by the, I know a lot of people felt like, oh, is 2021 the same as 2020? Mm-hmm. I do feel a contrast though. Like I Very do feel much. a difference and I'm grateful for, you know, the things that are feeling yeah, just better in that way. But yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I know, honestly. I completely agree. But um, uh, if you guys are new here, so Almost 30 started five years ago. I change the year each time I say it. But five years ago, when Lindsay and I were transitioning to our 30s, we are now in our 30s. But we really seek to have meaningful, open conversations that you know expand our minds and really just provide us with different perspectives. That's That's really what we're here to do. Yeah, that's truly what we're here to do. And I think, you know, in the time that we're living in, it's been interesting to see how different perspectives, um, there's not a lot of space for different perspectives. And our intention with the conversation that we're going to be having today with our new friend, Africa Brooke, is that is to bring in different perspectives, is to um, empower us really to do our own research, to trust ourselves, to question and then make decisions from there. And, you know, I just have a lot of, um, I have a lot of compassion for all of us, like living during this time where social media and the media is a huge part of our daily lives. We're on it every single day. A lot of us have our livelihoods on social media. And so how can we not be necessarily influenced or swayed or affected by whether it's like mob mentality or other things, it's almost impossible not mm-hmm. to be affected by it in some way. So, yeah. I'm not affected. <laughs> Just kidding. I, I'm very intricately affected, actually. Yeah, it's, it's very unique to everyone. That's why, yeah. And um, as is everyone else. And so our conversation today is just incredibly powerful and even healing. You know, for Lindsay mm-hmm. and I, this felt like one of the conversations where we really gave ourselves permission to go there, to ask the questions, to say the things and to really live as uncensored as we could. And that is something that seems to be very hard during these times to not censor ourselves, to not censor others. And we've been a huge fan of Africa Brooke for quite some time. She wrote an open letter uh, that was about leaving the cult of wokeness. So it was called An Open Letter, Why I'm Leaving the Cult of Wokeness by Africa Brooke. And this letter was sent to her newsletter list and then was shared publicly and has since gone viral. And a lot of what she shares about on social media and in this letter feel very, very relevant and feel very, very important for us to discuss and for us to percolate and for us to explore and for us to learn about. And so during this conversation, we wanted to talk a lot about um, the cult of wokeness. We wanted to talk a lot about what is happening online as it relates to cancel culture, mob mentality, and so much more. Yeah, we also talk about self-censorship and how that's just really really dangerous in a world where like seemingly it's very exciting when people have new ideas and are creating. And I think this this idea of self-censorship in order to protect ourselves is, yeah, really stopping all of that creative mm-hmm. and energy progress. and progress and conversation. It's the worst. And just really uh, puts us in, in our shame and mm-hmm. doesn't let us live 
live beyond it. We also talk about her journey to becoming sober. Um, For about a decade, she was abusing drugs and alcohol. And yeah, it was just really fascinating how she actually found self-responsibility in that process and why it's been such a pillar of, of her work today. Yeah, that was one of the first things we we explored in the conversation is why self-responsibility is so like controversial. Yes. <laughs> well, like why, why is, is it offensive? Yeah, why is it offensive if you ask some, you know, if people are being encouraged to be self-responsible? Why is that so offensive? And that led us into a conversation about how language is really being used and um abused. Abused kinda. and weaponized mm-hmm. and just you know, you don't want to use big, big words to explain how language is being used uh, against people, but it is just something that's very much so happening with language that seems to be very interesting to describe um, certain things. And we also talked about nuance and the gray area and living in the gray area. And that felt so deeply true for the human experience and the ways in which that online and on social media and in the news and what seems to be forced upon us is mm-hmm. to live in the black and white and everybody that I know, every human that I know in my circle and my uh, friendship group and my existence is so much in the gray area between between wrong and right, between good and bad, between black and white, between red and blue, and really exploring more of that area rather than always just keeping us in the binary. Yes. Yes. She also talks about the research that she's done. So first she gave us an insight that Back in 2018, like she was definitely eager to hop into a mob and um, dehumanize people in, in various ways. And, you know, she had an experience that she'll describe in the podcast, which I think is so, so powerful that shifted her perspective and, and belief and influenced a lot of the work that she does now. But she did a lot of research um, on echo chambers, on mob mentality, on self-righteousness, um, in history, and just the psychology around it. And I thought that was incredibly fascinating to kind of bring in the science behind what we're witnessing um, in humanity right now. Yeah. So Africa Brooke is a mindset coach and consultant. She's based out of London. She is incredible. She works with people one-on-one. You can find her on Instagram at Africa Brooke. And we're really looking forward to this conversation. So we should just get right into it. Let's do it. And as always, we just empower you all listening to be really open-minded. You know, I think that's why podcasts and these types of conversations can be so cool and and such a source of ahas and um, yeah, just self-study in a way. So yeah, we just encourage you to be super open-minded. Yeah, as always, you know, our intention with all of our content that we share with you is to never be one-sided. We always want to bring a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different people. And that's exactly what we're doing today in this conversation with Africa is sharing a different perspective that maybe you guys haven't heard quite yet. So with anything, we always encourage people to take it in, to think about it, to percolate on it, and to create your own opinion about what you're hearing. And we know that you guys are ready for this. You guys are incredibly powerful. You guys are incredibly you know, you guys are change makers. So we know that this conversation is coming at a perfect time for you and we're excited to share. I'm really grateful for mm-hmm. you to be here and and so is Lindsay. This has been something we've been really looking forward to for a really long time. You know, we 
just in awe of you and your work. And this feels like a perfectly timed conversation for the both of us. And it feels like a perfectly timed conversation for our community. And a lot of what you share and a lot of what you speak to is funny because it's like, there's like a paradox there where you're like, think for yourself. And then I'm like, I think as Africa Brooke. (laughs) Like, it's like, I find myself just being so in agreement and alignment with what you've shared that sometimes I'm like, I even even having to catch myself. And it was interesting because in one of your lives where you talked about the post, the letter that you wrote, it was like um, the live after the the letter where you had Rikari on. And you're like, Rikari's like, I think it's interesting that you shared this letter and so many people like now think like, like you do and you've done this journey to come to this place. And I thought that was just so fascinating and interesting because it was a good reflection for me in a way, you know, where I've had um, experiences within our community and just in, in the public that have made me come close to the place that you've been. But I think your unique experience really allows you to write this beautiful letter and to speak to all the things that you speak to. And I want to talk about the letter a little bit later, but I think something that's super interesting about your story and something that I can really relate to and Lindsay as well is the sobriety journey. I stopped drinking when I was like 25 years old till 30, around 30. And it was one of the most transformational times in my life. And I found that that was a huge step in my awakening and my becoming who I am. And I'd love to hear a little bit about you know your journey to become sober and how that's really led you to this place of, of radical responsibility. Mm, thank you. And thank you so much for your kind words. I really, I really, really, really do appreciate that. Thank you so much. And it's so good to hear that you're both on this sobriety journey as well. And I, I, I have said this in the many conversations that I have, but I believe when you have gone through something that leads you to sobriety or recovery, you do view the world in a very, very different way. You really do. So for me, my journey with sobriety, I would say it began, I began testing it when I was about 19, because that's when it started to get really, really bad. And when I say really bad, I mean blackout drinking, binge drinking in particular. So having just one, that concept really did not exist to me. This idea that you could just have one fucking drink. Yeah, right. That's impossible. Why would you torture yourself in that way? That was just the way that I thought. And I had been training that way of thinking since the age of 14. So it was just my default at this point. Because at 14, like many other young people, the intention was to get drunk. It wasn't for taste. It's not for anything else. It is to get drunk. So that very same pattern followed me until I stopped drinking at 24. So 19 was when I realized that something had to change. But I was so psychologically dependent. I was never physically dependent, but I was psychologically dependent. I felt as if I was pretty much nothing without my fun time girl persona, without the drugs, without the partying, without the casual sex, without the chaos and drama that came with it. That was just a firm a firm part of my identity and alcohol felt like my best friend. Anytime that I was out in a social situation, I felt like this is what I needed to take to unlock that version of myself, which everyone loved so much until they didn't, right? Because there comes a fucking point where everyone's over it. Everyone is over the show and you were just by yourself with the show. So 19 was the time when I started kind of toying with moderation because it felt too big to just cut the cord, which is the case for many people, right? But for me, and I always say this, moderation felt 
so torturous for me because my intention was not to have one or to have two or to have a few. It was to have everything that is available. Whatever is available, I will have it. But I was testing it out to see what worked, what didn't. And my blackout drinking would get worse and worse. And what would really show me just how bad it was getting is the amount of time that I would be in a pretty much in an unconscious state. So an autopilot. Mm -hmm. So if you didn't know me, I would just be doing whatever, having a full-blown conversation, making plans. At least I can't drive because my goodness, my goodness, it would be at dinner or with my family having lunch and no one knows that I'm in a blackout. So I'm not going to remember any of these things. Waking up the next day, I've made plans or just energetically, I can feel that something bad happened, but I can't remember. So I, I always say that it was like CSI mode, you know, where you look at your phone, is anyone upset with me? So you can just feel that something bad happened, but you don't know. So then you have to apologize for things that you don't even remember. So it was just that cycle, that cycle. And I tried sobriety in terms of on a more strategic level. You know, so things like I'm going to stop drinking, I'm going to stop going out with these people, certain friends, because I know how I get if I'm with this group. So just changing friendship groups all the time, thinking that that was the thing. But the thing is, I'm the common denominator. I'm I'm always going to be there, right? So it was just strategizing, trying different things. And I tried getting sober seven times between the ages of 19 and 24 seven times consciously trying to get sober and nothing, nothing worked. The longest that I went without drinking, I believe was four months. But that four months, I I didn't even feel that I was doing it for myself. It was to prove something, to prove to people that I can do it, that I'm not fucked up, um, that I'm not broken that I can change. I was losing pretty much everyone around me at this point. All the party friends that I had before, they had got bored of the show because they always knew that it ends up in a certain way. So people, you know, people don't really tell you these things. You just see people starting to drift away. And the few people that you do have close to you, when they try and tell you, chances are you get very defensive. Or in my case, I got defensive as many times as I needed to And then I tried the four months and it was to prove to the people that I still had around me that I can do this. And then I started drinking again. And then in 2016, what was different about that time is that I was just done. I was just done. I was spiritually exhausted, spiritually exhausted. And that's a a different type of exhaustion because it's not just physical. It's not just emotional or mental. It's a spiritual exhaustion. You know that you can't do this anymore. Um, And I was also given an ultimatum by my partner at the time that if that he's not able to be with me or support me anymore if I continue in this way. And he was so loving, still one of the most incredible men that I've ever been with, so supportive of me. But I was so unpredictable that if we go out even for lunch or for dinner, he will leave with me, Africa, but he doesn't know what's going to happen. So it started to make him so anxious, started to take him away from himself. Um, And it just became very, very toxic for many reasons. And I tried sobriety. I said, I'm not going to drink again. It took one other horrific incident, which was no different from before, but it was just, you know, the final, the final nail in the coffin. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to try this thing again. And it was the 7th of November in 2016. And I knew I had to hold myself accountable in some way. So 
I didn't know anyone that was sober. And culturally, just in my community, I'm from Zimbabwe, I'm African, very conservative background. So speaking about things like addiction or blackout drinking, it it just wasn't the norm at the time. Mental health wasn't a thing in the way that it is now. So I turned to Instagram, surprisingly, and I started my Instagram account, the very same one that I have today. And I always say this, but if you scroll right down to the bottom, you will see the very first post that I wrote asking for help. I didn't know who I was speaking to. I just knew that if I don't hold myself accountable in some way, I will drink again. I will snort another line. I will smoke something. I will go and have sex with someone, anyone. Um, And then I just started sharing my story, started reading different resources. I went to a couple of meetings, but it just didn't feel... There was no connection. I I loved that I, I was in that room with people and, you know, no one was holding back. You could be your fullest self. You know, your shadow was welcome. And I loved that so much. But still, I didn't feel comfortable with calling myself an alcoholic. Um, And I know that's a very useful term for a lot of people, a lot of my friends, which I absolutely love. But for me, it didn't resonate. So I did it in the best way that I could. I love to read. So I read a lot of sobriety books, a lot of autobiographies, looked at which other celebrities were sober because I found that so motivating to know that someone that had such a chaotic relationship with drugs in the public eye could do it. So that means that I can. But that's that's kind of like a the short version of what the journey looked like, what led me to start sharing my story of sobriety as a way of holding myself accountable, not to build community or a brand or anything like that. Just I, I needed somewhere to to have that outlet. Otherwise, I would have drunk again. And that was nearly five years ago now. Wow. Was there any point at which you felt the inclination to blame others, your culture for your alcoholism. And I, I don't want to label it that, but just um, for the sake of this conversation, but because I know you've talked about that before and just bringing it back to that self-responsibility, I think is just such a... And I haven't been to meetings, but I, I do think it's such a, a momentum builder, that self-responsibility. It builds confidence it builds um, self-reliability. Um, and I just think it's it's just like this beautiful choice. Um, but I can imagine that like there are human parts of you that might have blamed others at some point. Those first seven times, now looking back um, and now being equipped with the language, you know, to understand human behavior, human emotion, I know that the reason why I relapsed a lot of the time is because I was I was blaming everyone else. You know, I was externalizing so, so much. I was blaming my father, who was an alcoholic, and he died because of alcohol. I was blaming growing up in a abusive household because my father wasn't was abusive as a result of the way that he drank. Um, I blamed how disconnected I had felt from my mother for a long time because she had to come to the UK before we did, me and my siblings, so she could start working, so she could set everything up, so she could bring us over. Now I understand that as an adult, but that separation that I felt as a child, I didn't really understand at the time. So I had resentment around that. So it was very easy. It was very easy to place the blame. and. 
the reason why I believe that this eighth time was different in 2016 and why I've experienced sobriety in a very different way now was because of that self-responsibility piece. It was realizing that only I can change this. Only I can, can change this, you know? I can have other people support me. I can have all of the tools and the resources, but only I can change this. I need to take responsibility for the person that I have been for the past decade. I need to take responsibility for the shitty things that I've done, for the way that I've manipulated people. Because when you're living that kind of lifestyle and you're just living in the way that I did, and many people would understand, there's a lot of manipulation. There's a lot of lying to people. There's a lot of deceit. I was cheating on my partner quite a lot, right? And who who can I blame for that? Who can I blame for that? I have to take responsibility. So that's what was very, very, very different about that last time, which is why through in all the work that I do now as a coach, as a consultant, as a practitioner, I encourage self-responsibility so much because that's where it truly begins. Mm. Did you see, I guess, with your within your culture and even your your mom and people around you, like, did you see people being self-responsible or were there expanders for you of people that you could look to that were self-responsible already so you could see them as an example? Yes. Oh, I love that question. Yeah, 100%. And you know what? At the time, I didn't look at the people closer to home. So for example, my mother, who now... I can see really leads with that value, self-responsibility. And she's never said it out loud, but her actions just show it. So she's 58 now. So she grew up in Zimbabwe where there was still segregation. She grew up very, I would say, she grew up poor. She grew up poor with 10 siblings, living in a village, very, very happy, of course, very close because our culture is just very close. It's very community-based, so much resilience, so much resilience and self-responsibility. And my mother and and my aunts and my uncles and my grandma, they have never seen themselves as victims. I have never heard them either blame the government. Of course, there'll be aspects of that if, you know, it's contextual if we're having very specific conversations about the government because they lived under a dictatorship under Mugabe, right? So, but I have never ever heard any of them refer to themselves as victims or blame anyone else. They've always made things work. Acknowledging what has happened, which I always talk about and emphasize the importance of acknowledging the reality. So my mother acknowledging the reality of having an abusive husband, acknowledging the reality of the society crumbling in Zimbabwe, her being a geologist and being successful in what she does and coming to the UK and all of that education being completely irrelevant, being completely irrelevant and having to start from the bottom. And, you know, she never went on you know, what you would refer to as welfare, we would refer that here as benefits. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with getting government assistance if you can. But for my mother, that was she never saw that as an option. She never saw that as an option. She was going to find a way to work to make it happen. She was going to take responsibility for her circumstances, right? So I would say she and many other women and men in my life are 
the blueprints that I have for, you know, for the values that I have around self-responsibility. At the time, I didn't see it. At the time, I was so in my own ego. I was so in my own chaos. I just, you know, had this fuel and this desire to blame someone, to blame anyone, anything, right? But as I got further into my sobriety, I would say maybe about a year in, I started to really notice that actually I had this blueprint around me all along. I think that's like, there's a psychological explanation or part of that where, you know, and you're in your teens and like late, when you're in your teens and early twenties, you're actually trying to differentiate yourself from your family. It's actually part of your growth and your individual, like how you create your own individual identity is sort of creating one outside of your family. So I remember doing that quite a bit where I was like very rebellious. You're very much trying to see the differences between you and your family because that's what makes you an individual. So it makes perfect sense that you weren't looking to them as your immediate like inspiration for what exactly you were trying to do. I agree. I love the question you posed in this vein of self-responsibility. Why is it offensive to prioritize self-responsibility while also acknowledging the systems that we live under? I just, I thought that was so, so powerful. It made me think about how we use the term or the phrase, I'm offended in ways that to me, I've never like, I, I've never identified with that mm-hmm. phrase and I think because it feels so general sometimes where I'm like, what is actually happening here? Mm-hmm. And it's this way to use words to conjure some sort of emotion from the other person. I'm still fleshing that out. But I would love to talk about you know, why you believe or how you've experienced this offense taken by your own self-responsibility and those in the public eye especially uh, taking self responsibility. Yeah, I and I, oh, I completely resonate with that. I've never, I don't think. In fact, I know I've never actually said I'm offended. I've I've never actually mm-hmm. said that. And you know what? It's interesting. I've in real life, I've never heard anyone say that either. It's so. It's so. Have you? Have you? Both, <laughs> no, I'm trying it's to. It's funny because I'm like. Krista, I'm offended. Like, I know. It's a very like... It's a very like hoity-toity. A, like to be Ohio, it's, it's very hoity-toity to be like, I'm offended. I see <laughs> it like, I see it typed. I see it... Yes. I see it on a headline. I see... Yes. It's that. So it's just interesting how we haven't heard it vocalized. You know what I mean? Yes. Very often. Very often. Very often. Exactly. And, and you know what? I guess you could also argue that we have had it vocalized, but just not in that exact language, right? People will express yeah. that offense in different ways. Um, and what I find interesting about that and why it's a big part of the conversations that I have publicly and with my clients and just with people around me is because, again, you're, you're removing, you're, you're making someone else responsible for your emotions, right? It's this idea that every single person or most people that you interact with should somewhat know what your exact triggers are, what your exact life experience is, right? So it's this, and I, and I see it as this journey that leads to entitlement, mm-hmm. right? That, that's just the way that I see it. And some people might like that, some people might not. And I would encourage you that if you find yourself kind of resisting even me saying this, to just sit with that and ask yourself why that is. Right. But I find that, yeah, exactly as I said, it 
it disempowers you. To put it to put it very simply, the reason why I encourage us having these conversations is that it removes all power and choice from yourself. Mm. I am powerless. I am powerless to this individual. Anything that this person says or does, whether it's a stranger or someone that knows me well, they will get to decide how I respond. I don't get to decide. You get to decide how I will respond. And that's a very powerless position to be in. So it's no surprise that we find ourselves feeling resentful. We find ourselves feeling angry. We find ourselves seeking you know, to, to be outraged because we will be swayed by anything. And in the way that I see it, even on a psychological level, one of the things that will actually keep you grounded is having that self-responsibility and having those internal boundaries. How do you filter information, right? How do you filter information? If you come across information that you don't like, again, you have a choice. That's a powerful position. Do I engage or do I move on? Because this is not, not everything is worth the fight. Not everything is worth the fight. And I think we forget that a lot. But the reason why I emphasize these difficult conversations, which really shouldn't be, is really starting to give yourself back that power. Because when we're offended with everything, looking to be outraged, we're outsourcing our power. Someone else is deciding how we feel. But we need to remember that we get to decide. And this is also not to say that you are not allowed to feel hurt by the things that you see or to feel disappointed or you know to look at something and say no that's actually not okay however if you're reacting that way to every single thing by default that's really detrimental to your mental health and to your well-being overall so i i always like to also say that we need to make sure that we're not misplacing our outrage because outrage is not a terrible thing in and of itself, right? So many things within society have changed for the better because of collective outrage. But when we're misplacing it and everything is making us outrage, to me, then then yeah, there's a fucking issue that needs to be addressed. I think just on the the outrage piece, I think it's so interesting that if we like look to what we're talking about collectively, that I would hope that people would be aware of how much it's dictated by the media and by the mainstream media because there is so much to be outraged about that exists outside of the current news cycle that is like actually unbelievable. And it's like one of those things where when we're thinking about our power and how often we can lose it and how quickly we can be like sucked back into whatever conversation is happening online or in the media that wants our attention— I even notice that with myself, you know, sometimes in the morning I will be ready and I'll like it on my phone. And the other day I was, I read an email that was like really annoying and I put it away. And five seconds later, I was like, oh my gosh, what was that about? Because I realized that my body was addicted to sort of feeling that annoyance in the morning. And my brain was kind of trying to catch what that was so I could continue to like mull over that annoyance. And that's like on a very small level, what we're sort of doing is like, because our bodies are now more so trained to be addicted to that nervous system hit when we're on social media, Mm -hmm. when we're online, our bodies are looking for that on a regular basis because they're really used to being in that state. And the media, Twitter, Instagram always seems to feed us um, in that way, you know, uh, very uh, conveniently. The one thing about to self-responsibility is like when we, if this is what's so hard and what I relate to you so much on is like so much of what you say to feel so clear to me that it's, 
I even have a hard time trying to relate to other people that don't see it with such clarity as well. And with the the taking self-responsibility, it's like the only thing you can control is yourself. Like how much do we not know that we can't control anything else? We cannot control how other people act, how other people, the world, we cannot control the weather. We cannot really control anything. So really you only can control yourself. And it feels like that should be clear, but I, I don't know, you know why it's always not. But the point I wanted to get to was on um, what you talked about entitlement. And, you know, something that Lindsay and I talk about and something that we work actually with our, our healer Kiki on is like around narcissism and entitlement. And really for me, it feels like narcissistic in the way that people operate online where they feel like they're offended because, you know, you didn't take into consideration this one thing when you spoke online or you are, you need to be held accountable for saying something you said 15 years ago on Twitter and you need to be accountable to, to them or you need to be apologizing for these things. And really like this way that we perceive the world where we think everything is for us and everything is about us and everything should relate to us is such a weird thing. And how have you sort of seen the narcissism and entitlement play out online, especially before you came out with your letter? Mm. Oh my goodness, massively, massively. And the thing about this is that, um, and this is where I also exercise compassion because when you are in those spaces, it's very difficult to see it for what it is. It's very difficult to see it for what it is because a lot of the time, you truly believe that you are doing the right thing. You know, you hear all about being on the right side of history, right? Um, A lot of the time, you truly believe that you're doing the right thing. And there also needs to be an emphasis on, on the fact that there's a kernel of truth in a lot of these things, right? Whether we're talking about movements and speaking up about certain things and people being held to account for actions. I nearly found myself saying held to account for harmful actions, but I can't even take the word harmful seriously anymore. <laughs> violence. <laughs> violence. It's unfortunate that some of these words, it's like now violence. I'm like, wow, typing is violence. Because they, mm-hmm. mean, okay. they mean very specific things. And they're said very loosely, but they have real life repercussions. But there's a kernel of truth in all of, in all of these things, all of these movements and the, the way we should be speaking up. However, when it starts to, to get very extreme to the point where it becomes, you know, like a surveillance state, right? Everyone is watching each other. Every single thing you do is being watched and it's being monitored. And you're supposed to live up to these really perfect standards. But the 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 goalpost moves every single day. So you you're never really settled because you don't know when things are going to change, when terminology is going to change, when you know someone is going to point at you for doing something wrong, and then the entire mob is going to come, right? So the thing is, when you are in these spaces, you can't really see that. It just feels so normal because you're operating from a very righteous place, you know, with this idea that you are morally superior and that your job is to find any wrongdoing and put things to right, right? And when you when you really think about that, that is just, it's a trap. It's a trap because there is there is no such thing as perfection, first of all, and we we all know that. And we have to understand that the world in which we live in 
there will be, there's always going to be suffering, for example, whether we want to admit it or not. That's just the truth of the world and the planet that we live on, right? And there's always going to be injustice and inequality. And as long as we're alive, those things will exist, but we need to make sure that we're lessening the suffering and the inequality for people. But the approaches that we take when we're in these spaces where there's no room for asking questions, so simple, but there's no room for asking questions. There's no room for getting things wrong. There's no room for transformation because there's this idea that who you were 15 years ago, five years ago is who you are now. So many contradictions there as well, because how can we hold people to account if we don't, if we're always going to hold that incident over them? Do we want them to change or do we want to punish them? Because we're not being honest about something, right? But yet again, when you are in those spaces, it's very, very difficult to see it in that way. There were so many times where I truly felt that I was doing the right thing. I used an example in my letter of something that happened last year, 2020, when Black Lives Matter you know, came out in full force for very, very valid reasons. We all know what was happening at the time, but I was very angry. I was very frustrated And interestingly enough, I had done zero research on any of the cases that were actually out. Nothing, nothing. Like many people, I had done no research, but I had just seen something and I was in a very highly emotional state and I just followed the crowd. And that's exactly what happens. We just follow the crowd. You don't ask any questions. You don't do any research because you're told that you should react. There's no time and space for you to respond because if you take time and space to respond, your silence is violence. So what do you do? You react and you go with the crowd. And that's exactly what I did. And because of my unique position at that time as a Black person, you know, being told that pretty much Black people are being slaughtered all over the globe, I just took in that message and I just reacted. So I remember there was a man that sent me a message and he he was asking me, do you think this is the right way that you should be approaching this? Because I was pretty much joining in the silence is violence train and reposting things that were pretty much shaming white people into action, essentially, right? No room for anyone to process what is going on. Now I have found out about this news. You need to respond now. Because that's that's usually the case, right? You're supposed to respond when someone else tells you, now is the time. You you just respond. And he sent me a message. It, he didn't say anything horrible, anything offensive. I, of course, see that now. But he was just asking, is this the best way to, to respond if you want people to actually engage with the conversation? And I took a screenshot of his message and I put it onto my feed. And... Thousands of people liked it. Thousands of people started berating him. In, in, in my comment section, I got this kind of, it fed my ego. It fed my ego because I had felt like I had done the right thing. How dare this person try to police my anger in this moment in time? And that kind of language, that was the language that I was using at the time. And maybe other people do, but it, it was following the script of what I thought I should say, what I've seen other people say, therefore I should say this, how dare this man, that was another highlighted point, he's a man and I'm a woman, so how dare he try and tell me how I should respond? Thousands of people were berating him in the comments 
And I just watched all of this happen and it just fed my ego and it made me feel good. It made me feel good. And this is something that thousands of people have also been telling me over the past months, how good it feels to watch someone else being taken down when you genuinely believe that you are doing the right thing. Because that that's what you believe, right? And the post must have been up for about three hours and about 6,000 people liked it, so many comments, and something just didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. I had done what I should do, something didn't feel right, but I didn't know what that something was. And then I just, de- I just deleted that post straight away. But I didn't have the language for it at the time. I didn't have the kind of understanding of really how dehumanization works, even though it's something that I've been aware of, but I just didn't have the language. That's what I had done. I had dehumanized that person, right? I had separated him from his humanity, taken his action, which was not even offensive at all. He was simply just asking, is this the best way to engage in this very important conversation, right? And because I didn't have any answer, I didn't have an answer for that because I had never been challenged in that way because the echo chambers I was in, we all say the same thing. We all agree. There's no room for challenging. If anyone asks a question, people will jump on, right? So I was being challenged in a way that I had never experienced before just by a genuine question. It had made me feel extremely defensive. So I took down that post and that was the day that I realized that no, Something something is happening here and I don't know what that something is, but I, I, I don't want to be part of this anymore. And that's when I started researching the psychology of mob mentality, started looking at the role that I had been playing in certain social justice spaces, um, started looking at the interactions that I had had, started researching self-righteousness. How does that show up? How do we act when we're afraid of the mob, which, which right, we react and we join in and we chant the same things, we repeat the same scripts. And yeah, I, I just took some time to really understand what had happened in that moment, what had happened in those two weeks in June 2020. And that's when I was just exposed to the shadow of a lot of these echo chambers. And yeah, that that's that's what led me to write the letter that I did in January. And I know this was a big tangent. I don't even remember what you asked, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't, that's, I don't that's either, the, but that's no, the journey. no, that's the way it should be. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's profound. I feel, yeah, I got full body chills when you're like, that made me think something bigger was going on here. Yeah. And same. Just, just thinking about like joining the mob because we've all felt that pull to not be attacked and therefore join the mob. And really to me, it's like another form of self-abandonment. Mm-hmm. It's like joining the mob, self, you stay here. Mm-hmm. You're not welcome here. You can't question, you can't express yourself, but it also feels so safe. So this like primal reaction is happening when, when either someone is called out or a group of people are called out and it's, it literally feels like we're in danger. I say we, I just mean that group. And and so what do you do? What do you do to, especially online, a lot of people have their 
livelihood based online. So they're like, how do I protect myself, my livelihood, maybe Mm -hmm. my family? And then it's like, I have no other choice but to either join the mob, say I'm so sorry, and disappear ultimately for some people. And it's just, it feels incredibly unproductive. And like, where is the human to human conversation, you mm-hmm. know? And, 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 you know, we've experienced some things over the last year that it just feels like a conversation can't be had. And I've been so, like, we've been so frustrated, like, why? Why mm-hmm. the fuck can't we have a conversation where you can show up as you, I can show up as me, and we can witness one another and hold space for one another and see what's here rather than completely shut down anything. Yeah, just kind of um, just nix any experience that the other person has had, whether we agree with it or not. Um, So thank you for sharing that story. I just feel like that's so profound. And I think a lot of people, yeah, really knowingly or unknowingly find themselves in echo chambers and feel very Mm -hmm. comforted by it, secure, confident, and um, it can be really, really dangerous. What did you find in your research um, when when you were researching echo chambers and self-righteousness and mob mentality that really helped you to um, speak on what you speak on now? Yeah. So one of the first things that I really started looking into, we not even intentionally, but I realized that there was something there about compassion And it was a reminder of my sobriety, actually, early sobriety. And maybe both of you have experienced this, where now all of a sudden in clarity, I had to sit with everything that I have done in the past 10 years. I have to sit with the cheating. I have to sit with the lying, with the manipulation. I have to sit with just all of those moments that are very messy, very complex, very awkward, very degrading, you know, I, I had to sit with them. I couldn't drink it away. I couldn't smoke it away. I couldn't sex it away. I couldn't do any of that. And it was, it would have been very easy for me, which I had done many times before, to start shaming myself for what had happened. Right. But the only way I could move on from that was to show myself compassion, was to really understand that even though everything that I was internalizing and repressing had manifested itself in such aggressive ways, I was protecting myself in the best way I knew how. And this is really important, right? Because the core of everything that I work on and study and research and help people with is self-sabotage, different elements of self-sabotage. How do we sabotage ourselves on an individual level and on a collective level? And everything we've just been talking about, mob mentality, what you see online, what some people refer to as cancel culture, that's something that I call collective sabotage or collective Mm. self-sabotage, if you will. And I realized in early sobriety, in the same way that I did after this incident in 2020, was that I had to show myself compassion and to understand that I was protecting myself in the best way I knew how, right? So with that specific incident, one of the first things I realized, just like you you just mentioned as well, it's about the fight or flight. That's what happens. You get into how do I protect myself mode, right? Because my thinking at the time would have been, and I'm sure a lot of people will resonate with this, just the details will be different, but you might have experienced this. So 
that interaction could have stayed in the DMs, right? When that person had sent me a message about this, it could, it could have and it should have stayed there. That's the most humane thing to do. Show this man his humanity in the same way that he is showing me my humanity, right? But the way of thinking was, again, that fight or flight. If I have a healthy conversation with this person, am I defending this behavior and therefore betraying the mob? or the community. So what I need to do is to not even see this person as a human being and to just present them to everyone else so that I can feel like I still belong with my community. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that has been the biggest pattern that I've seen in every, everything, whether it's a client, you know, reaching out to me and, you know, they've experienced public shaming in one way or another, and they're trying to kind of pick up the pieces, which is what many people experienced last year, is that fight or flight. So for anyone that is listening to this, that has been part of a mob in some kind of way, or or been part of a public shaming or a call out, or they've just reacted instead of responding, instead of actually doing the research, or they've been told that someone is quote unquote problematic and they've just cut the cord without actually finding out the truth of what happened. Really show yourself compassion because we react in those ways a lot of the time because we're we're in fight or flight mode. We're trying to protect ourselves because if we make ourselves believe that if we side with that person, then we're going to be mobbed by proximity, right? That's just that's just what a lot of people will think. So they'll cut off their friends, they'll cut off their family, their partners, their colleagues. Most of the time, not because of ill intent, but it's that fear or, of if I stick with this person, even when I know their heart, something is going to happen to me. So that has been the most interesting thing out of all of it, that fight or flight, which is just a very, again, it's that primal, it's that ancient thing within all of us, no matter how much technology advances, that will never go away. And it just manifests in different ways. And online, especially, we're seeing it more than ever. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm actually interested to look back historically in, I guess, as far as we know humanity to go, is like how the mob plays out over time. You know, there was, there's been mobs historically over time always and how people sort of, you know, the cycles of power and there's just, so I think that's, you know, and I, the reason why I would do research is to just really hopefully give the mob more compassion in my eyes, you know? So it's like having compassion for that because mm-hmm. it's something that we do culturally, something that humans have done over time. And yeah, the mob is so interesting because I've said it a billion times behind the scenes. I'm like, the mob is never satisfied. And the mob will shift and the mob will move and the mob will turn on the people that feel like they're safe. And, you know, we even saw there was this uh, thread that someone sent me just to be like, wow, this is crazy that this is happening, which I don't usually enjoy those. But um, I got one and I was reading in the comments and it was like a mob calling out thread. And there was someone in there that was like, oh my gosh, thank you for doing the work of calling all these people out. Thank you for doing the work of calling people out. And someone commented below that and was like, oh, you're actually in this call out. You're included. So the person that felt like they were safe, they were like, I'm safe. I want to make sure that you know that I want to make sure that I'm safe. I want to say thank you for doing the work 
of this list. No, honey, the mob, the mob doesn't care how much you bow to it. The mob is never satisfied. It will never, and the and the the it keeps getting narrower and narrower. You need to say this, you need to do this, you can't do this, you can't also be this, you can't do this. And you know, there was even a situation really early on in June 2020 where we were on an interview with some amazing podcasters and they were two amazing black women. And they were like, what do you feel like about All Lives Matter? And I had no idea what it was. I literally didn't know that there was a thing compared to BLM that was something. And I I was so confused. I actually didn't know. I'm like, I don't know that there was a thing. And obviously I was able to be educated and learn what it was and, and understand why people were doing that. But it was one of those things where I was like, oh, wow, I could be completely canceled because I don't actually know what this is. And I don't really know how quickly things are shifting and how quickly language is shifting. Can you talk a little bit about how language is really being used and abused and sort of like just how people are really leveraging language right now? Mm. Oh, I'm so I'm so glad you bring that up because that's one of the biggest components of all of everything we're talking about now. And especially the anecdote you just shared, it's one of those examples where there's the expectation and this idea that everyone knows what everything means. A lot of people who are also, this is why I think there's also very elitist thing about the way that language is changing so much and people are being berated for it because a lot of people who are working class, they don't have access to these conversations, Mm -hmm. to this academic jargon that is changing all the time. So it's very elitist, which is interesting because this is supposed to be for the people, but at the same time, it's again, dehumanizing the people that have no idea what any of it actually means. I worry a lot of the time that so many people are really out of touch with what is happening in the real world. We're so, uh, we're, we're so overcommitted to what is happening online, what is happening on the squares, what is mm-hmm. happening on the captions, the sound bites, that we forget that there's a whole world out there of people that don't have access to these conversations where language means a very specific thing, right? So for example, another another thing that really concerns me quite a lot is when you will hear people saying things like, um, you can't, (laughs) when you hear people saying things like black people can't be racist or white people can't experience racism because racism means power plus prejudice, right? You will have a lot of people saying that exact same thing. Racism means power plus prejudice. And then I will, I will ask people, where did you hear that from? And 99.9% of the time, and believe me, I have spoken to thousands of people, okay? They will say, I, I just heard, I, someone else said, that's, that's what it means and that it's changed. But race, racism means a very, very specific thing, okay? Systemic racism is about power and prejudice. That's what systemic racism is. It's about power. But interpersonal racism does exist, which means that any race, and it's it's really shocking that I even have to say this in 2021, which means that any race can experience racism. And because the conversations that I had are always usually very American, um, centered around America, some of these definitions wouldn't make any sense in another country. They they just wouldn't they just wouldn't make any sense in another country, right? So 
it's really starting to understand that the words mean very, very specific things. And when we just start to use them without even knowing what we're saying, it really waters down the terms. So when we're calling everyone racist, when we're calling everyone a sexist, when we're saying everyone is a misogynist, it's really removing the charge from things that actually mean something, right? And I truly believe, and many people would agree with this, that there's a very big difference between someone being racist and someone being ignorant. We need to understand that there are those differences, right? Mm. And if we're calling everything violent or everything harmful, when someone says, no, I actually don't agree with you. And did you know that this is actually this and it's not actually that? And you say, oh, you're being violent. Where, where, where is that actually taking us? Nowhere. It's shutting down very valid conversations. It's making people extremely afraid. The amount of people that reach out to me talking about just how much their anxiety has spiraled out of control in the last couple of years because of the way things are online and it's pouring out into the real world. It's not isolated to online. You know, young children young children who are so afraid to have conversations with their friends because they're worried that what they say is going to be posted on the internet or they're going to be canceled or that something is going to happen to them. So it's actually breaking down the way we communicate. So again, those those real life repercussions, because we're misusing language, we're pathologizing everything, right? And we're misusing very valid psychological terms, sociological terms. And it's, yeah, it's, it's really concerning, which is why conversations like this are very, very important. Whether it's uncomfortable for you to hear, it's important that you hear it and you process it through your own self-awareness and you say, huh, I don't quite understand this, but I'm curious. I think what we're missing is curiosity, right? I'm curious Mm. about this. Do your own research, read into it, listen to different voices, and then decide how you feel about it. Then if you don't agree, you don't agree. And if you do agree, amazing, you've been introduced to a new perspective. But the way that we use language, we really need to start being more intentional. We have to start being more intentional because it's it's really ruining the way that we communicate which means we get even more divided because when we have when we don't have communication the only thing we have is division. Yeah, I just wrote down self-trust because it makes me think about like do people trust themselves mm-hmm. enough to sit with themselves and say, "Okay, what is this feeling?" do their own research and make an informed decision based on their own experience and what they've researched. I don't think so. And I've, I'm someone who didn't trust myself for a very long time. So I have a lot of compassion there. And I think especially in, in the context of being a part of and or possibly um, the target of a mob, like, yeah, I think it just magnifies this distrust in ourselves that the loudest must be right, must know more than me. And yeah, it's actually really really terrifying to think about. Um, it's, it's, it's blown me away that people have not been concerned, and there are people that are concerned, but they're not the loudest, about the censorship online, mm-hmm. um, where a very specific group of people who believe certain things are being censored pretty blatantly on um, big platforms like Facebook and Instagram and this and that. Yeah, it's just really 
it's concerning for so many reasons, but more so I'm like, yo, can we just trust ourselves to like discern mm-hmm. and and make our own right decisions for ourselves and the people that we love and our communities rather than, no, please censor all of this so I don't see it, so I'm not influenced by it. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's fascinating to me. And I really am, I'm concerned more it's, so because it's it's putting the power in a place that does not empower all people. Yes. And I just, do they think that, do they think that big tech has our best interest at heart? That's what I don't get either. I'm like, do you guys really think that big tech has our best interest at heart? And not even saying that they don't have our our worst interest at heart. And then also too, it is sort of like, it's so interesting to me that the people that are always saying that they want inclusivity, they, they want all these things, want it except for this. They want it except when, when there's a black woman that's saying these things, or they want it except when people are saying the things that they don't want. They want it when, and so it's just such a fascinating thing that we do as humans. And we really just, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. You're absolutely right. And Something that I've really come to realize, and a lot of people are starting to realize this actually, because you will have a lot of people that celebrate when certain people get censored, not realizing that if this person can get censored, trust me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can too. And it's already happening. It's already happening. I was heavily in the sexual wellness space because I had a sexual wellness company um, for four years. And Instagram, for example, and Facebook and many other platforms have started to censor sex educators, people that talk about sex and pleasure. And that's terrifying. That's terrifying. That's an example. And those are people that are very much um, liberal, progressive on the left, right? But that's another form of censorship that is already happening. There is so much evidence of that. There's a very selective censorship that is happening. But what I find most terrifying, and I believe this is where it kind of begins and where censorship on that level becomes normalized, it starts as self-censorship. I truly believe that's how it starts. And this is something that I'm looking into through a more kind of research lens and really understanding the psychology behind it. Because when you come to the point of censoring yourself. So self-censorship is from a place of fear. It's from a place of fear. That's the very big difference with being mindful of your speech, which we really need to be careful of because there is a consequence to everything we put out, right? Everyone should know that. That is common sense. Be mindful of your speech. Self-censorship is different because it's based on fear. It's from a fearful place. And the thing is, once you become comfortable with self-censoring, which you don't ask any questions. You're afraid of saying the wrong thing. You feel like you're walking on eggshells all the time. Uh, You feel like your opinion is not welcome. Your political stance is not welcome. What you believe in is not welcome. Just all of these things, right? So you censor yourself and you conform to whatever the popular narrative is. The thing is, what happens there is that it creates a shit ton of resentment, a shit ton of resentment. So when you have become very trained in censoring yourself, you will never allow anyone else to be free in how they think, in how they express themselves, in their beliefs, in the way they communicate. And then what happens is that this is happening on a collective level. So you have many people that have become well-trained in self-censorship and they're all resentful. And then they come together and they start to believe that everyone else should be. Because if I have to fucking suppress myself in this way, who are you to get to speak? Right? 
So then this leads to this mass censorship that we're seeing. And my belief around free speech, right? I think we, not even I think, I know, we need to really get rid of this idea that free speech equals hate speech. Because again, we're in the binary. We need to allow the gray area to be what it is. That's where we all exist. We need to allow for the nuances, right? Because we we all need, regardless where you are on the political spectrum, or if like myself, you were politically homeless, so you don't really, you're, you're nothing, you just are, right? We, we all deserve free speech. Again, mindful speech is the, is the pillar of that, right? Being mindful of your speech, understanding that there are consequences. But the moment that we start seeing free speech equals hate speech, we all lose. We all lose. Because we will, whether we realize it or not, we will continue to advocate for, self, for self-censorship and collective censorship. And I'm of the belief that all ideas need to be heard, even the, even the worst ones. All ideas need to be heard because when they go underground, that's when the worst things happen. So there's this idea that when someone gets censored or when ideas are censored, they just disappear and we're in a utopia. That's not what happens. It goes underground and it festers and people come together from a very angry, resentful place and the worst things happen. We've seen it. We've seen it historically. However, when you make space for all ideas to be heard and we make room for conversations to be had around those ideas, and it doesn't have to be a nice kumbaya, it can be whatever it is, but make room for everything to be heard. Then we can pick out the good ideas and develop those good ideas and get very clear on why this is a bad idea, why this doesn't actually work. But if we suppress all of the bad ideas, they're just going to go underground and become stronger and manifest regardless, right? Yeah. Yes. There's a concept I'm trying to think of where it's like, it was in a book and it's almost like what happens is we start to self-censor ourselves and then we censor each other and then the government doesn't even need to censor us because we're so busy censoring each other. It's like some sort of watchtower thing. I don't know what the concept is, but... Mm that's sort of what happens is, you know, the government sets or whatever set these standards of of what we're going to say and do. And then everyone's so busy censoring themselves that, you know, the government doesn't really need to and do anything. And it normalizes it yes. so that when the government actually does more to censor us, then people are like, yeah, this is how things work in yes. order to keep the peace. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you can't go against this. This yep. is what's for good of all. Yeah. yeah so you- it's, it's one of those things, right? You're made to believe that it was your choice all along. Oh my yeah. gosh. So you feel like you're, um, oh gosh, it's, it's creepy, mm. isn't it? It's yeah. disgusting. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, that's what they do is they, they create the problem and then they create the solution. Oh. So we feel psychologically like we want it. And that's happened over time, many times. Mm-hmm. And there was something you were talking about um, as it, and it was making me think, and I think this has been, I guess my biggest question about what's going on is like the focus for me seems to always be on the trauma and there's this sort of trauma loop there's this trauma porn there's this trauma conversation there's this problem ad, problem conversation where we're always focused on the problem and not that I'm saying that it's not important for us to have conversations about what's what's going wrong 
But I, I never have felt like there ever is an opportunity for like, what's the best case scenario? Or like, what's the action against this? Like, what is the next step? Should we do this? And I think more of the opportunity and permission for people to dream and for people to believe and for people to like see better opportunities or better future is like what needs to be had instead of like brands built on the fact that people are oppressed. And so they make money basically telling us that people are oppressed over and over and over again. What would you say is like the step for people when they find themselves like, okay, I'm in recognition of the problem. I'm in recognition of sort of like what's been what's been happening, but how can I move to a place of seeing a better future? And this, this can sound quite simple, but it, it really is what's missing in all of this. The reason why I believe that it's very difficult to even start to to see what the solution can be is because no one's talking. No, no one's talking. Everyone's shouting. Everyone's shouting. We're all expending energy in the wrong places. Everyone is exhausted. You know, everyone is angry. And again, there's a that kernel of truth. There are things that we do need to be angry about. There are things that we do need to be vocal about. However, we are wasting so much energy. And we're not making space for conversation. So what I would recommend for anyone is that once you have this awareness that however you've been approaching things hasn't been working or the spaces that you've been finding yourself in haven't been conducive, not only to your well-being, but you can see that nothing is changing. And we need to start being honest about that, right? If we're putting in all of this energy and we're calling this person out, calling that person out, why is nothing really shifting? even just not not on a wide scale globally, but even just within the small communities that you're in, why are the relationship dynamics not changing? Why aren't more ideas being put on the table? Why aren't solutions being put on the table? Why are you being kept in that cycle of anger? That's something that I had to ask myself, you know? Why am I being kept in this cycle of anger? Who's benefiting from me being fucking outraged all the time because someone is, someone is, someone always is. So once you start asking yourself those questions, the next step in how I see it, and this could be different for everyone, right? I see it as being start to have conversations, start to have conversations with people, start to engage with different ideas. Even if it's just on a very practical level, listening to podcasts that you would normally not listen to. Listen to podcasts that maybe some people have said, oh, that person is problematic. If you knew how many (laughs) times I just had this person is problematic and immediately took that on board, not even listening to them, if they're like a philosopher or an educator or a thinker, just that they're problematic and you shouldn't listen to them, which is something that very much happens in these spaces, which is why I connect it with cults because with cults, no outside information is allowed in. No Mm. outside information can come in, nothing. Mm -hmm. Everything has to stay inside. You are not allowed to read anything that could change your way of thinking. You're not allowed to um, speak to anyone that could change your way of thinking. Why is that? Why is that, right? And one of the first things, slight tangent, but it it ties to this, so interesting. When I broke out of these spaces last year, I would feel, I would listen to certain people, certain thinkers, and I would feel guilty. 
Like I'm do I'm doing something wrong. Like uh, should I be listening to this person? And then I would just sit and listen and it's just a no, it's just a normal conversation. It's just a normal conversation. Debates. I started watching there are some incredible debates online. Um of you know professors, thinkers, philosophers, whoever, just debates. And it was so strange to me to see two people with opposing opinions having a conversation. Should I be listening to this? Right? So on that practical level, I would say start listening to podcasts or reading books of people that you never normally would. Start really introducing yourself to new ideas. And depending on how entrenched you were in these spaces, it can feel uncomfortable. So strange that I felt like I was doing something wrong. Should I, should I even be engaging with this? Right. But I I say this, that to say, introduce yourself to just new ideas, people that you would never normally listen to. And if you listen to it and you decide, you know what, that is not for me. The beautiful thing is that you've given it a fucking chance because Mm. any space, any group, any movement, any person that tells you that an opposing opinion or any outside information is dangerous, I would question that because that's not a community. That's a cult. That is not a community. That is a cult, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but ultimately, to really simplify all of that is that it's about communication, learning how to communicate again because only then can we start to see solutions. Yeah, the the identity piece is so interesting in this specific conversation where we identify either with a person or a belief or a political party and it gives us purpose. It makes us feel a part of something and to question it or educate yourself or listen to other opinions is literally kind of like earthquaking the identity. And I I think it's so healthy to do that because any stagnant, identity, I don't think allows for a ton of growth and evolution. And I just kind of want to bring this around to staying with language. The the words used to keep people oppressed, and you've spoken about this as far as just how marginalized groups can't view themselves Mm -hmm. outside of that oppression net. And so I'm curious if you felt that personally and how, how this plays a role in really keeping these these oppressive systems in place. Yeah, oh my goodness. That plays a, that plays a huge role and this is also another really dangerous thing that I'm I'm seeing happening. And I use the word dangerous very very intentionally because when you start to see because I have a lot of conversations with people, I work with a lot of clients around similar-ish things. But when you start to see how this is really starting to affect people's real lives, that's when you know that it's becoming very dangerous. And it's interesting because a lot of the Black people in my life or brown people, people of different races, don't even consider themselves oppressed, especially here in the West, especially those that are from immigrant families. They don't consider themselves oppressed because most of them are from countries where they've witnessed a certain level of oppression, where you could look at it objectively and really acknowledge it for what it is. But it's, it's also interesting because a lot of people feel that they're being told that they need to say they're oppressed. 
So again, is that is that powerlessness, right? That you don't get to choose. There are people that are choosing for you, which is why I find it quite sinister when you have people most of the time that are white, liberal, progressive, et cetera, that will say things like, as a privileged person for these oppressed communities, it's it's so bizarre because it's you're reminding me of the oppression that I don't even own because it's almost viewed in a very monolithic way that if you inhabit a black body or a brown body, automatically you are oppressed. And that is racist. That's a, that's a new form of race, racism. If you can look at any black person that exists or any brown person that exists, any Asian person that exists, any Arabic person that exists and say you are oppressed, that that is racist, right? So it's this very interesting, it's what I call Again, it's that, it's that collective self sabotage, but it's, ah, oh, yeah, I'm getting chills even as I think about it because it's just, it's just so sinister. So it's being presented as liberation, but it's disempowerment, essentially. It's, it's not liberation. It's not liberation. So again, the way that we use language in this way, deciding who is oppressed, who is the oppressor, who is good, who is bad, who is right, who is wrong, just this very binary way of thinking that doesn't actually allow for people's true experience to be shown, where people are just put into groups and categories and identities. And, you know, your your beliefs are already pre-decided for you. Your history is already pre-decided for you. And we are here to save you and look after you because you are the oppressed minority. That's, that, yeah. That, that's how I have seen it play out. That's why I completely reject that. And that's why I'm so glad that a lot of people are starting to push back against this to say, no, no, you don't get to decide for me that I am oppressed. You don't get to do that. Yep. That was where it got hard for me last year. It got tricky. Not There was nothing hard for me about it last year, but that's where it got, where it just piqued my interest and it felt a little uncomfortable where the narrative was that all Black people are oppressed. All Black people have this one experience. And I know most of my intimate relationships are with Black women. And I know how much they have parts of their experience that relate to a narrative that is shared publicly and they have parts that aren't. And how different all of their experiences are as Black women. And it's like, there, there isn't one experience that they're all experiencing. And from my perspective and from their, their mouths and conversation, they don't feel oppressed in the way that the narrative is being shared. And I've never felt comfortable being like, I am the oppressor, you are the oppressed. We are in this sort of cycle that, I, that I'm not sure if we're being shown how to get out of it, if it does exist. And then I've always felt like with, you know, the conversation around being um, racist, I definitely believe there's there's racism that exists. But I've always felt like, you know, if I had children, I would never tell them over and over again that they are racist and that they are inherently racist and that they need to prove their entire lives that they are not racist. And I felt like telling all of our country, you are racist and you need to forever prove that you are not racist, never felt like it was really the way forward. It felt like 
you know, there was definitely obvious racism that we needed to um, have conversations about. We needed to educate. We needed to be mad about. We needed to do all of the things. But to just go and blanket statement everyone as you are black, you act this way. You are white, you act this way. Just felt like no one was really being treated as a human. And it really led to the dehumanization of so much. Absolutely. And you know, there, that's where you would have to ask the question. And many people are starting to ask these questions, which is just the most beautiful thing. Um, who, who gets to decide that? Who gets to decide that? Because when we look at the influence of the internet, social media specifically has a huge part to play in the in this, right? Because a lot of these conversations, a lot of these theories, whether it's privilege theory or all these other theories, you would have normally just found them in academic spaces where an academic would write a paper and it would kind of just stay within the university, stay within those spaces. These ideas would be challenged, some wouldn't, etc. However, because of things like social media, where someone can come and present an idea and it can just be taken as the absolute truth. Also, this idea that if someone writes a book on this subject saying, and I always refer to the book White Fragility, we don't have mm -hmm. to get into that, but it's just one example, you know, where someone writes a book and decides that they're going to speak on behalf of an entire race, that, that's, that's not normal. That there's nothing normal about that. And people need to question that. And yes, as I said, people are starting to question this. People of all races, people of all identities are just starting to really kind of step back from everything that last year, especially was the intensity of everything and just start to look at things through a critical lens. Who gets to decide these things? And is this actually working in the real world? Because when we get to the point, and I actually saw an article and a meme about this, when we get to the point of saying that a white baby is inherently racist and this is how you start to notice their racism from three months to, yeah, then, then we have a fucking problem. I'm sorry. Uh, then, okay, okay. It, it's like, I, I was with you, but now you have fucking lost me and we need to talk, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah it's so fucking the, true the, the, the only thing I'll say about white fragility is the irony that it is from a white woman that even at the moment where we think that we've we want to listen to black people more or as a culture people are like okay I want to support you know it's like in that moment people choose this path of most cult you know, it's it's unreal. Yeah, no, it, it is. And as as you know, we're saying, and as should be obvious, it's about being able to hold those multiple truths, right? All of these things do exist. Systemic racism mm -hmm. does absolutely exist. That's something yes. that needs to be acknowledged. Racism in general, interpersonal, individual racism does exist. And any race can experience it. And we really need to widen the lens so, so that we stop seeing America as the only country on the planet and understand that a lot of these concepts don't really make sense anywhere else. Like well, when that can really be helpful for anyone listening. Does this concept actually apply anywhere else? And if it doesn't, then we need to start kind of unpicking that a little bit, right? Because then that means these generalizations are more harmful than they are helpful. But we can acknowledge all of these systems and still understand 
that we need solutions, that we need solutions, that it doesn't make sense to generalize an entire race, whether it's, you know, the white race or the black race or the Indian race. It it doesn't make sense to do that. We need to start looking at people as individuals. We need to understand that things can be a case-by-case situation instead of generalizing because it's not helping anyone. In fact, it's causing more harm to the very people that it claims to want to help. And you will notice this in a lot of spaces because a lot of these conversations are painting Black people as victims, as oppressed, as people that constantly need to be saved, um, need to be, you need to walk on eggshells around us. Um, you need to treat us as less than, right? You need to not take our merit into account. You should just look at the color of our skin and decide that we can get into spaces. That's infantilizing us. That's condescending. And that's, mm. and it's racist, right? And that, that um, narrative of, as well around if you're white, then by default, you're the oppressor, et cetera, et cetera. It's feeding the very same thing that it claims to want to dismantle, which is white supremacy and white superiority. Because now you're getting well-meaning, well-intentioned white people to constantly, to constantly approach marginalized people with, I know that I'm better than you, but I'm here to help you. No one wants that. No one wants that. And I, I, I'm confident that we're now at that point of really starting to see this. And I, I also think another whole conversation, but I also think because, you know, at the time of this recording, we're still in the pandemic. Many people have been in lockdown for over a year. I think a lot of things are amplified because we're very isolated right now, but we're very much, you know, in technology every single day. It's the only mean means of connection for a lot of people. So we're over-engaging with things we normally wouldn't. We're saying things that we normally wouldn't say, you know, we're expressing our rage towards the government or whatever else in, in other ways. So I'm confident that things will change. And most people are pushing back against this. And most people that are engaging with this stuff are realizing that it's not actually helping anyone. So, you know, another way to also say that conversations like this, you know, whether it's the one that I'm having or the one that you both might be having privately or this one that we're having right now are crucial because they allow people to start thinking a little bit differently. My last question is just on your confidence because even just watching you on Instagram, listening to your podcast, reading your writing, I just, it almost feels like there's no one that can fuck with you. Mm-hmm. And I know that's not the truth. That's probably not the truth. But I'm just curious, like, how, because you said, like, you were a part of the mob at one point. And so how you've really cultivated this confidence within yourself, because I think a lot of people are wanting to cultivate that within themselves to either, you know, actually maybe question their own beliefs. And that takes confidence because ultimately ultimately you're thinking about what other people are going to think. So just curious about that. Well, first of all, yeah, it's true. No one can fuck with me. That is, that is true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, they could try, <laughs> they could try, but, but the thing is, I, I feel very unafraid because I, I see the long lasting damage that a lot of this stuff does. 
So even when I feel nervous or I feel like, oh, should I really say this? Which I don't really. It's because I see the bigger picture. It really does go beyond me. Yes, I'm the vehicle. I'm the vessel saying all of these things, doing all of these things, writing, speaking, etc. But it's much, it's much bigger than me. It's much bigger than me. And a big part of that confidence it would be a complete lie to say that it all comes from me because it doesn't. It comes from people that I call mentors, people that don't even know who I am, but you know, other thinkers that introduce me to new ideas, you know, they make me feel confident because I realize that I'm not alone. So a big part of my confidence is understanding that actually I'm not alone. You know, there are many people that feel this way and it allows me to continue showing up. And when people tell me, um, the damage that a lot of this stuff is doing in the real world, right? That gives me confidence to speak up. And I know what the cost of not speaking up actually is, right? Because if I don't use my black privilege in some kind of way, because let's, the truth of the matter also is a lot more people are willing to listen to me because this message is coming from a black person. If I was white and saying the exact same thing I'm saying, a lot of people would dismiss it. That, that's just the truth of the matter. So I know and understand that I can use what I have and the advantage that I have and the integrity that I have for the to good. That gives me confidence. That gives me confidence as well. And I would say my sobriety, because when you've been through some really dark shit, some really messy shit, and you at one point never thought that you would be able to get out of it, you approach life just in a very, very different way. You're just more confident about life. So I would actually say that the core pillar of my confidence is my sobriety. And then everything else comes after that. And the collective care that I've received from my community over the years and mentors, even people that are just completely unrelated, a lot of the kind of shame and just dehumanization. Brene Brown is just wonderful because she was able to kind of introduce a new perspective in that regard. And just having conversations with people, just having conversations with, with people in my family, my partner, my friends, that all contributes to my confidence. Beautiful. So grateful. <laughs> I'm sad to close our container. Know, I'm excited for the next one. Just want to thank you, you know, for your work and for liberating Lindsay and I in a way today, just to really have this conversation with you. You know, it's something that we've spoken about with our community and we've spoken about more so in private, but it's really been exciting to just speak with you today and really hear you you speak about your journey and everything that you've learned because I feel like I've learned so much from you. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate that it's a different perspective for people and that we can open up people's minds in that way. So thank you so much. I want to just leave where with you sharing, you know, where people can find you and how they can work with you or, or what they can expect from you. Mm, of course. And I, I do just have to thank both of you as well for making space for this conversation. Of course, I don't have the full insight of how you feel about having this conversation, about sharing this conversation, about what it might be, but I can see the integrity that you both have and making space for this conversation is is huge now more than ever. It's, it's so important, so important. So thank you both as well. And for anyone that wants to get in touch, you can find me on Instagram. It's the only social media platform I have at Africa Brook with an E at the end. And my name really is Africa. 
because I, I know, I know that some people will call me brick, <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, oh, if you want to discuss how we could potentially work together, find out more about my work, you can send me an email at hello at africabrook.com. Or if you just want to share an insight of something that came up for you during this conversation, I'm more than happy to receive some of your words because I truly believe that the more that we continue to have these conversations and the more that we say things that we normally wouldn't say, not in a disrespectful way, but you know, maybe as a white person listening to this, a part of you feels conflicted because you're like, yes, I agree, but I'm white. Should I agree? Um, we need to make space for that. We need to make space for that inquiry and to actually reach out and speak to someone and say, yeah, actually, I, I do agree because we need to start looking at each other beyond skin color. I can't believe I'm saying this in 2021, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't it so interesting how, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, yeah, anyway, do re reach out. I would love to know what your insights are, but thank you both so, so much. Thank you. You're so welcome. We're so grateful. So grateful. Thank Ooh. you so much. I'm sad to go. Um, I'll be I'll be watching you on the gram and I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much, Africa, for coming on the pod. We appreciate you so much. And thank you guys for listening. Thanks for sharing with a friend that you feel like you want to open up conversation with, that you feel you want to explore this topic with, that you feel you want to have you know, just some self-reflection and self-study as we always encourage. Um, we really appreciate it. Truly. And quickly, we just want to thank our sponsors for this episode. You can find all discounts and information about these brands that we love and use ourselves in the show notes, as well as on our website, almost30.com. Thank you to Function of Beauty, Sakara, Jenny Kane, and Paleo Valley. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you next time. We'll see you soon. <laughs>